London Lopate at Large. I'm London Lopate. Many important news stories tend to get short shrift in the establishment media until they can't be ignored any longer. And that's why we've been inviting Robert Henley to be one of our regular guests on the show over the years. He's an award-winning print and broadcast journalist who specializes on the economy and politics. And you can hear his WBAI show most Monday mornings. He also reports regularly for Salon, The Village Voice, and a number of other prominent news organizations. His book, Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People, is published by Democracy at Work. And I'm very pleased to welcome Bob Henley back to our show now. Hi, Bob. Thanks for having me. Well, understandably, the Trump indictments in Georgia are dominating the news to the exclusion of most everything else. But don't the media usually choose to focus on one or two major stories to the exclusion of other important things that are happening? Well, I would say that also uh, we've talked about this a lot uh, on these airwaves is the loss of authenticated local reporting. Hmm. So um, increasingly... Uh, you have a news wave, a national consciousness that's driven by social media. And so it, there's a disconnect, right, between, and, and it's been growing. Uh, the pandemic kind of manifested it between the lived experience of the American people and what they see reflected about their experience on television. And the, uh, the ongoing insurrection, and I would say that I, I look at this phenomenon with Trump as being, like I say, it's not something that has happened in the past, but it's an ongoing situation, much like you'd see in a Caribbean island nation where there's a certain level of instability, where they have possession of the Supreme Court, they have, uh, you know, part of the legislature, and it's really an open question about which way it goes. And so what we see is this crisis of accountability in the country, of course, where now we have the state of Georgia and the federal government law enforcement structure really trying to deal uh, with an ongoing uh, criminal insurrection. How much individuals play a part in all of this? For example, in the old days, we got a lot more local stories because we relied on local newspapers. Many of them are gone. And TV likes to show things like shootings and car crashes and the like but not uh, doesn't spend much time on issues like uh, the sorts that you often write about. Well, it's true. And one of the things that happens, like even when there is a national story, there's always a local angle that needs to be pursued. And so a good example would be we had this uh, major political story uh, just last week where the Republican Party in Ohio had this very cynical ploy to try to... Uh, uh, counter this groundswell that came in the aftermath of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Pro-choice and reproductive rights advocates has, uh, were successfully poised to get a ballot question on the Ohio uh, uh, ballot come, uh, uh, you know, the election. And uh, this is something that the GOP could not resist, but they had this too smart by half plan. Well, what we'll do is will depart from our constitutional tradition of over 110 years and raise the threshold um, to 60 percent in order to make this uh, to codify the protection of reproductive rights. Uh, and of course, 
uh, what ended up happening was that this was something that really galvanized uh, a real bipartisan uh, coalition and uh, and resistance, which resulted in over three million people turning out in the middle of August and giving a sound defeat to the Republicans. And driving that was actually the Ohio, Ohio AFL-CIO, a newly invigorated uh, labor movement galvanizing the grassroots, punching way above its actual numerical weight. And if it had not been for the reporting of Andrew Tobias from Cleveland.com, I wouldn't have known about that because the New York Times didn't see fit to recognize it in its reporting about that event. So it, it works on two levels, right? And so that's why it's so important that we support local news. And, and if we don't find it, create it. The uh, pretty much all the votes so far have indicated that the public supports abortion rights. Why do you think the Republicans continue to pursue this? I, I think it has to do with the fact that uh, we've had such a contraction of uh, that party that in terms of the primary process, you now have uh, it's kind of like a clubhouse and it's one where in order to get uh, access uh, or to even stand up in that uh, that tree fort, you have to be most extreme. So there is this disconnect between the Republican Party and the na the national scene as a whole. But that they still have sway in, in big swaths of the country, particularly because of the way that are even going into uh this cycle of, of things that happened with Jan January 6th, we had a, a country that was not really uh, democratic. We, we've talked about this a lot. You've had other guests on that have talked about the way that uh, the odds were against democracy. I mean, it's important to remember we started this project uh, with the country being very restrictive about who could vote. Uh, you know, and so now there's been this kind of, uh, we made some progress um, uh, through the 60s and 70s and 80s in terms of increasing engagement. We thought that when we elected President Obama to two terms that we had turned a corner. And then before you knew it, we found ourselves right back in a real reactionary cycle where the stars and bars were carried in the, in the rotunda of the Capitol on January 6th, something that didn't happen during the Civil War. But even within the Democratic Party there, are major conflicts. You've written recently about uh, a recent New York State court decision that permanently enjoined New York City Mayor Eric Adams from forcing a quarter of a million retired civil servants into the, the for-profit Aetna Medicare Advantage plan. Yeah, and so that is something that um, goes back, and it's, it's something that is actually part of a national reconsideration of Medicare Advantage. And it's important that we uh, at least go back and review a bit how this came to pass. We had a situation where both political parties, uh, particularly the ones that were susceptible to getting money from the insurance lobby, um, created and it supported this concept of Medicare Advantage, which is the private sector uh, creating this parallel universe that acts like a uh, an HMO and captures uh, the senior citizen population and acts as a broker. And so what ends up happening is we've seen, and there's been all kinds of inspector general reports about this, 
The Times did some stellar work on this back uh, last October. Kaiser Health News uh, really uh, opened this can of worms, showing that what happens with these private plans is they overcharge the federal government some $75 billion and then make their money by restricting access to the care that you need through prior authorizations. And it's estimated that some 10,000 people died uh, annually as a consequence of being denied care. But what's happened is this snake oil got traction because everywhere you go on television, it is being advertised as the best thing since sliced bread. And, And the reality is that this battle in New York City with a quarter of a million people uh, was really something that, uh, you know, what was driving this was that the labor unions, uh, particularly the larger ones, DC 37, UFT, uh, Teamsters 237, uh, were in a situation where they were negotiating negotiations with Mary Adams. They wanted to make sure they could get raises for their active employees. <clears throat> Costs were going up. They had six years where Michael Bloomberg didn't even settle a contract. And so a lot of the things like the Health Stabilization Fund were drawn down when uh, Mayor de Blasio tried to settle like 100 contracts in 18 months. And so they were ripe for uh, the Aetna sales pitch that the city could realize some $600 million in saving by selling off Hmm. the retirees' health care and access to judicial Medicare. Now, a judge, a state judge, has ruled that this is uh, violative of uh, I guess it's uh, a promissory estoppel, the idea that something was promised as part of their uh, their contractual engagement by the city and by existing city code. You can't go back and when people have made decisions about what to do with their lives and where to work. And inherent in that is this uh, guarantee of uh, free health care in, in, in retirement. You can't go and renege on that. But the, there's a 57-year the precedent. That. Right. And the mayor, though, is continuing to appeal this and is continuing to want to block and tackle for a predatory uh, healthcare company, which is all I think you can call Aetna CVS. Aren't some of the, uh, the practices of some of the nation's largest Medicare Advantage insurers, including Aetna, which uh, happens to be my insurance company, uh, <laughs> aren't they currently under investigation by the Department of Justice? Well, right. So uh, in the reporting in the Times, uh, and we've been really focusing on this a lot at WorkBytes, uh, back in October, what they did was collected uh, all these inspector general's reports. So it's important to understand that CMS, which is uh, the that's like the cash registry the federal government has, and all the requests for reimbursal for Medicare goes into that. And so what they've been tracking is that the what the uh, health insurers have been doing has been to send people into your home and then to upcode you that is make it appear that you are sicker than you are because cms reimburses the healthcare uh insurance companies uh based on how sick patients are and then on the back end and this is the really sneaky part they will restrict your access to the care that you need through prior authorizations, denial or delaying care. And and uh, one of the things I was at a rally uh, in Washington last month where the New York City retirees uh, organization that has been fighting this 
were greeted as heroes because there is now a national movement led by the nonprofit uh, Be a Hero and things like Social Security Works and uh, the Center for Medicare Rights and the likes of Senator Elizabeth Warren, Katie Porter, Ro Khanna, Rose Delorio, I mean, some heavy hitters in the progressive circles are now fighting this privatization of Medicare. One of the things that's happened is in this last year, over 50% of the Medicare eligible cohort are signed up with these predator healthcare hmm. plans. And uh, it's they're hard to unwind. And something similar is happening with Medicaid as well. And then this thing, the opposition includes 9-11 parents and families of firefighters and World Trade Center victims who've announced their opposition to Mayor Adams' efforts to remove traditional Medicare and the New York City supplemental coverage from a quarter of a million retired New York City public service. So, yeah, I, so does that include police department, the fire department, the emergency medical service, other so, New York right, City so agencies the, so, and departments? So one of the things that's uh, uh, very powerful about this coalition is it's as diverse as the workforce. And so you have people that it's also important to understand that out of the 250,000 retirees, I'd say there's 40, 50,000 folks who were working at relatively low wage jobs in their careers in service to the city folks that serve lunch, people that were crossing guards, people that were laborers. Even if you were on the job as a police officer and retired in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, and you had to deal with the fact that for many years your starting pay was kept low, the selling the unborn dance, then you really have to watch your pennies. And so the idea that this major benefit, which was a guarantee of uh, lifelong free health care, should be traded in or degraded, that has an impact. And so... There has been this cross-mobilization, adding complication, of course, is the fact that there are, you know, we've actually seen now uh, there are thousands of retired civil servants uh, who worked in lower Manhattan and in portions of western Brooklyn uh, serving the city who did not qualify as first responders. That is to say they did not go on the pile, but there was no Zoom in 2001. So in those several months when the fire still burned, you know where your backside was. It was sitting at 1 Center Street. It was sitting at 250 Broadway. And many of these people are battling uh, uh, terminal diagnosis with cancers. And so to have the city on top of this fact that they didn't make the, the uh, test to be a first responder in terms of uh, what their health care coverage is, they also now have this whole roulette that's been imposed on them by a really heartless city administration. I mean, there's no other way to really uh, to look at it. I mean, Mayor Adams, by the way, to add insult to injury, is refusing requests from Congressman Goldman and Congressman Nadler to release the files that the city had when Giuliani made the decision to go along with the EPA um, a false uh, all clear when they said the air was safe to breathe. So it's really, I mean, I know Mayor Adams is trying to figure out how to how to redo how he gets his message to the public, but I think someone's got to tell him it just might be the message that's off. Hmm. Do you think it's all about saving money? I think that there are folks that are in the government that aren't elected. And so when you do this long enough, you see that there are people who are just kind of there with the furniture. And so the elected leadership comes in and out, and then you've got people that are um, uh, that are 
retire and then they come back in as consultants and then they have the same ideas that they had when they were here with Bloomberg. And it's a scarcity mentality. Uh, and it's uh, one that I mean, that's one of the things I don't think we really fully appreciate is the tenure of Michael Bloomberg. Uh, while there were some things he did, like banning public smoking in rest restaurants and the rest, when he went for six years without concluding a contract, he was laying kind of like little economic IEDs into the entire architecture of the civil service. And so this stuff is blowing up now because when you don't fund contracts and when year after year you disrespect working people and disrespect their unions – and their unions took it by and large. That's the other thing too yeah. is that Why? they were cowed. Why the, the uh, well? Let me first of all tell people that my guest on today's show is Bob Henley. This is WBAI New York, ninety nine point five FM, and streaming live at WBAI dot org. I've always heard that New York City's unions were very strong. Well, I mean. I think that uh, to some degree uh, we are seeing nationally and in New York City and New York State an upsurge in labor activity. It is true that unions have never been more popular, but in terms of actual reality, the footprint of union density in New York State is shrinking. Hmm. From 21 to 22, it went down from like 24% to 22%. Part of that is that Corporations in this country like Amazon uh, for years and years and years have been able to violate labor law. So when you have a situation like in Staten Island where Chris Smalls and his colleagues were able to establish the Amazon labor union, Amazon just broke labor law. They just didn't do they went and did opposite to what they're supposed to do and did not comply with the law. And they look at that as the cost of doing business. They will break vi uh, and violate labor law. And so the union has not had a contract yet. And as I like to say, uh, union organizing is like creating a great feast. And you know, Leonard, like food is a moment. And when you pull it together, but then it hangs around for a long time, it loses its taste, right? That's what happens with organizing. And so Amazon is cynically, and I might say, I believe criminally, uh, mm -hmm. violated labor law, and they go before the National Labor Relations Board, get a slap on the wrist, write the check, and go on and continue to do it. So that's part of the problem. So as far as the labor movement, you know, I don't think you can make a generalization. It, it, right now it's in ascendancy, but it's still in many ways uh, a, a, a fraction of what it was historically. I mean, at one point in America, 30%, a third of the workforce was unionized. Now it's like just over 10%. Wow. Uh, another controversy involves the, the, the state of New Jersey hiring a law firm to mount a legal challenge against New York City's plan to reduce traffic congestion by imposing tolls on vehicles in New York. Now, this is not a—how how political is this? Because we're talking about Democratic administrations on both sides— well, it, this is, you know, one of the things about New Jersey and New York, it's like a, uh, a marriage of proximity from which there can be no divorce. And so the politicians get a certain kind of boost internally 
when they are perceived as standing up for our state against New York or standing up against what New Jersey is doing. And so no one is pulling back and looking at the regional implications. Uh, and this can have some dire effects. Uh, I think we may have spoken last time I was on about the fact that in Newark we had this horrendous uh, uh, ship fire and two Newark firefighters were killed. And my reporting indicates that for whatever reason, the Port Authority doesn't have a firefighting capability of its own. And they waited uh, for hours to call the FDNY, which has the really uh, the only the real uh, marine firefighting capability. That night, the, the one Newark fireboat stalled out. So you see, um, one of the problems about this congestion pricing thing is that um, they really could have worked this out by having a conversation, right? But they didn't do that. And so now you have a situation where they're going to spend money uh, and have a legal battle. I mean, they were fighting over who owned the Statue of Liberty. They've been fighting over the Waterfront Commission. And uh, I mean, one of the one of the problems here is that the one city that we can look to where congestion pricing has been successful has been London, which the their proponents of uh, congestion pricing like to point out. But what you have there is a much more unified transportation bureaucracy in London. Here, what we have is the fiefdoms. You have the Port Authority, which is its own independent duchy like the Vatican. Then you have the MTA and you have this very fractured transportation system. And so understandably, um, you know, Mayor, uh, you know, I see why Mayor Adams would want to pursue the idea of getting some kind of support for congestion pricing. But it's also something where we've been through a major change in the way that people are using the city and commuting in the city since the pandemic. There's also the problem that many of the people that are going to have to pay into um, the congestion pricing are people that are shift workers that can't rely on mass transit or they're coming from mass transit deserts. And so in an age where inflation is still undermining working people's position, I think they're going to have to reevaluate it. Governor Phil Murphy says that the plan uh, would impose a financial environmental burden on New Jersey residents. Well, so what this comes from is that once people, once you put in this fee and you're going to have logically people adjust their commuting habits and their business strategies based on that. And so areas that are now sometimes congested that are on the periphery will now be congested all the time. So take me, for example, I work in lower Manhattan. I go to City Hall. I park in Hoboken if I'm on assignment and I can't take the train all the way down from the Jersey Shore. I am sure that once congestion pricing is put into place, I will not be able to find parking in Hoboken. And you'll see. Mm people bringing their cars closer to the city, but then avoiding driving into the zone. And so that's going to be that's going to be problematic. It's also going to create congestion uh, in uh, in hard hit areas that are already dealing with that because you're going to have increased truck and motor vehicle traffic as people try to evade the toll. Now, of course, what needs to happen is an integration of the authorities here and for these different provincial uh, political figures to get over themselves and to sit down at the table 
and work through it in the best interest of the bioregion. Well, the lawsuit, which was filed last month, claims that the Federal Highway Administration's review of New York's congestion pricing plan was inadequate. Obviously, the federal government should get involved, shouldn't it? Well, yeah. The question is whether or not they uh, did the due diligence. Did they? Uh, Can we blame this on Hunter Biden? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Anything else and everything else. Uh, no, but I think that uh, what you do have here is a situation where uh, we had this idea. This has been kicking around for a long time. Congestion pricing was first surfaced by Michael Bloomberg. It didn't. It, it didn't go anywhere. Primarily because the outer boroughs were in the situation where they were being told they were going to pay more to come into the city, and it was going to support mass transit. But it was kind of a conundrum, chicken or the egg, because there was there were many places where this where the city has been a, a transit desert where there isn't mass transit, and so you are really taxing people for an amenity that. They, they didn't have access to. And I don't know how much that's really changed. I mean, quite frankly, we've talked about this before. Uh, I do not understand why. The, uh, well, I know why. But what we need to do is stop refunding the stock transfer tax. Uh, people that listen to my show and follow my work know that in like 1914, a Republican governor faced with a $5 million deficit. Oh, for those halcyon days. Uh, and he came up with this nickel per hundred dollars for transaction for Wall Street. And at the time, the New York Times predicted that Wall Street would move and the financial center would leave New York. And so decades after decades, we collected that money, it went to support the city of New York and the state of New York. And then in the 1980s, uh, Democrats, I take it, had the bright idea of let's give it back to Wall Street. So we've been refunding it. Uh, religiously, to the tune of, I think, Senator, um, uh, I guess I don't want to promote him, Phil Steck, the Assembly from the Albany region, estimates $380 billion has been given back to Jamie Dimon and Wall Street. Really? Hmm. And so, so that's why I'm kind of skeptical. Like, all these things that Albany comes up with, like, we're going to make gambling so easy you can lose your paycheck. <laughs> With looking at your wristwatch, that's right. We're going to have marijuana in every block because we really care about the drug war. We'll make so many ways for you to give us money that you won't feel a thing. And the one thing they want to avoid is taxing the super rich that own the political class. That's the one thing they want to avoid. How much does New Jersey rely on New York for its economic uh, health? Well, not as much since the pandemic. And so that's one of the things that's come to pass is that I think that uh, observers of the real estate market and of um, human resources, there's been a, pretty, a lot of research about this. We're not going to go back to the way we were and that people have the idea that <clears throat> they can't get the job done unless they go every day into the city of New York. And so that means that you've got to reexamine a lot of the uh, underlying presumptions that went into uh, public finance. That's why I'm saying it's so important now to start collecting that stock transfer tax again, because we're seeing that real estate values for commercial property are taking a hit. We're seeing that so much of uh, the value of lower Manhattan real estate, which is based on foot traffic, is going through a transition. 
we need to find a way to shift uh, these areas into housing. It's a, it takes entirely too long for us to pivot. Uh, we see cases of, uh, we know that we have all this office space that's sitting vacant. And yet we know that we, we have this humanitarian crisis uh, when it comes to housing for the undomiciled and, and folks that are, are undocumented. And yet the, the, the problem is that the folks that are making all the money under the existing order don't want to give an inch. And so that's what politics has to be about, is getting them to see the, the collective interest. Do we have a sense that uh, Kathy Hochul and uh, Phil Murphy have a good relationship? That they can work these things out? Well, I mean, it's uh, it's funny because I mean, how much is, a, how much does party of a role does party play in this, and how much is it just simply what state you're in play in this? Well, I think that in the in the case of Mr. Murphy, remember he is term limited out, so he's a lame duck. He has been very much focused on leading the National Governors Association, and before that, the Democratic Governors Association. So he's about maximizing his national influence. Uh, and so we had this moment during COVID, during the crisis of COVID, where Andrew Cuomo and Murphy provided uh, some kind of uh, leadership because what was happening at the national level is we actually had a president in Donald Trump who was pitting the states against each other uh, and kneecapping the ability of the country to respond to a mass death event. That's something that no one's charged yet, but I think... He should be charged with that. And so we had that high point where Murphy and Cuomo were working together. That actually, I think it got to a point where Governor Wolf was involved and uh, Governor Lamont in Connecticut. But we've come a far way from that. And so I don't see any real collaboration. Uh, what happens in the Port Authority is that that's a, 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 a creation of uh, Congress, of course, but both governors get to make appointments there. But that's like Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, they, they're constantly looking, backstabbing, trying to get ahead uh, and using the Port Authority for everything except transportation policy. They, it's, a, it's a patronage pit to a large degree. And so the career people that are accomplished in the Port Authority are always dealing with the fact that the mission is compromised, like it was during Bridgegate, because of the politics that have infected it. You're listening to... Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. on today's show is one of our favorite regulars, Bob Hanley, who's also a colleague here at WBAI. He reports regularly for Salon, The Village Voice, and other prominent news organizations. The author of a book, Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People, which is published by Democracy at Work. Are you at work on another book? I am. And, and to some degree, it's going to be um, 
there will be some elements of it's going to be a reconsideration of stuck nation that's updated to reflect all that's happened the underlying premise remains the same clearly if we're still contemplating the 2020 election we're a stuck nation hmm. well isn't that weird that we still are well i guess it was i mean we've, had, from, we've already had three years of another administration although that administration doesn't seem to be uh, doing well uh, public relations-wise with the American public, uh, despite um, any number of uh, major accomplishments. Well, I think that uh, we are. We have to reflect that we've certainly advanced from where we were at, at the nadir of the pandemic, right? And so the problem, though, is that the power structure does not want to learn the lessons from the pandemic. And so that's why we're seeing, for instance, um, it's the leadership of New York Nurses Association um, the, in New Jersey, uh, the uh, HPAE, uh, the nurses union there in New Brunswick, with uh, the Steelworkers Local 4-200 that's on strike against the Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital. Uh, it's these unions that are now holding the power structure accountable for the abject failure that was uh, COVID. And I think that part of the problem is that uh, Biden is loath to admit it. Uh, you have a fa the reality that the United States was 4% of the world's population, 12% of its deaths from COVID, um, and also that we are in a situation where we pay more for health care than any other nation with the poorest outcomes. And it's very clear now there's enough uh, uh, excess mortality data that's been in and enough analysis completed. We can safely say that 330,000 people died during the pandemic solely because they lacked access to health care. Indeed, it was the scarcity of the American healthcare system that has been run for profit and not people that led to the United States having the poorest performance when it comes to protecting its population from COVID. And so you see that there's not the courage in our political culture to honestly face what happened. We here in, in, um, in the United States, 3,600, according to The Guardian and Kaiser Health News, 3,600 healthcare professionals died in the first wave of COVID, 700 of them from New Jersey and New York, two-thirds of them people of color. Uh, this is These are data points that the elected class wants to run away from. But luckily, because they, have, uh, they don't want their colleagues passing and suffering to be for naught, we have nurses' unions standing up to the power structure, which is still, I mean, in the case of uh, Robert Wood Johnson's system, they paid, ready for this? Leonard, they paid their CEO $16 million in the wow. second year of the pandemic. I mean, this kind of pandemic profiteering has to be called out. And so that's why I think that uh, Biden is not speaking to us. I and mean, what's their response? They're unwinding Medicaid right now. We had a situation where for dur during the pandemic where the federal government told states, keep people on Medicaid. Don't make them have to go through financial proofs because we were trying to save as many people as possible and control the infection. Then the minute we think we beat the infection, we're back to our same greedy, ill-advised ways that results in excess debt. 
The pandemic is being blamed for a lot of different things, including a major crisis we're facing here at WBAI. I mean, financially. Yes. Yes. What other crisis would there be? Uh, it's a reason we've been devoting a fair amount of our airtime recently to fundraising. Well, yeah, I mean, I think that that's one of the things that goes with the territory. Uh, if you're listening now, you've probably heard things here uh, going back many, many years. It ended up becoming like the major issue. I mean, the first place that, uh, that I heard stop and frisk as part of the uh, public discourse was on this radio station. Of course, at that point, it was, uh, I guess, uh, not Mayor Adams, but uh, Captain Adams. It was 100 blacks in law enforcement. Uh, we have been the the soundtrack of the social justice movement uh, basically, you know, for over half a century. And as a consequence of speaking truth to power, well, <laughs> it's not like corporations line up to give us money. And so that's why we really rely on you, uh, the listener, uh, to supply the resources to continue to carry this forward. So that's why we need you to support, call us, become a, a BA buddy in, in the name of the station, in the name of uh, Leonard's work. Um, it's really you're you're what's required. Your action is required. Because as you're pointing out, BAI Pacifica has been an important alternative to mainstream censorship because we address important issues that are often overlooked, and especially during our conversations or the ones we have, and we give voice to the voiceless and marginalize among us. Right, and that's why I think the number is, if memory serves me right, 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950. Or give to also... WBAI.org, give in the number to WBAI.org. That's right, and we know that particularly if you're a, uh, and I do have to also thank, there are um, groups that have supported us in the past, um, and I, I think that we've had support from um, labor unions, uh, but it's something where when you're not mouthing the, uh, the corporate line, you also have to go the extra distance and, and raise the money and make sure that you stay connected to the community. And the way to do that is by making sure that uh, it's you that are driving this. And so that's why we need you to call 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950. When it comes to big wins by organized labor, is there a problem because corporate news media, which is often fighting unionization, tends to ignore unions even when they're doing positive things to shape history? Yeah, well, I, I think that's the case in point with this latest story with uh, the Ohio AFL-CIO. We had the uh, executive director, uh, Tim Bergeon, came on and uh I was able, as I said, because of the very able reporting of um, uh, the the folks at the Cleveland.com, we got some uh, authentic analysis about what was actually happening. We, I was able to learn about the role that the teachers played in Ohio by sacrificing up big chunks of their summer to uh, call, to make the calls that are required to mobilize people. And so, uh, yeah, I would say, does the fact the New York Times does everything it can to fight unionization mean that the management class there uh, doesn't really want to own the power of collective action? Might they be a little bit afraid 
that if people come to think that collective action is a way to improve our circumstance, that it will catch on? You betcha. Well, that election in Ohio was uh, suddenly scheduled for August because there, there was a right. feeling that people wouldn't come out. So they must have been very surprised. Well, you're right. There's a hypocrisy there because one of the funny things is uh, talk about being uh, hung by your own petard. That at one point the legislature was uh, I was going to stop having these midsummer referendums because they thought that it was in the interest of good government not to have something where you wouldn't have maximum turnout. And then they reversed themselves to try to pull this off. And uh, I would say that this ability of this combination of social justice uh, and good government groups and labor to come together, that's the ticket for 2024. That's that's the way that we can have this resounding groundswell, which restores this government to one that puts the agenda of working people first. Bob Henley is my guest today on Leonard Lopez at Large. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Are there any other stories you'd like to discuss in the uh, 10 minutes or so we have left? Well, I, I would I would think that um, I am I am concerned about the implications of the of the fires in Hawaii. I think that one of the things that we have to look at is the patterns of land use there. Uh, there was some very good programming that Amy Goodman had in Democracy Now. Uh, that really you wouldn't hear anywhere else. That went into detail about how by stripping that land and turning it into uh, you know, not uh, moving it into basically this resort plantation with golf courses that you were reducing the water table and you're making it impossible to be able to have sufficient water to put out fires. And so these things, and that's the kind of reporting that we need in order to change the course that we're going in. I am concerned that uh, there's not enough attention to the implications of what happens if we're going to have, like we did uh, on June 7th, a bad air day where New York City's air and the, and the tri-state region's air is some of the most polluted in the world. And yet we still are in a situation where we're not understanding the connection between that exposure and the occupational hazards that essential workers are facing. And so, you know, we are still in a situation where that's why we need to organize labor now more than ever, because uh, there's research that's shown that if you were in a union through the pandemic, uh, you had better odds um, at surviving. Uh, they actually have done the studies of comparing congregate care facilities that were unionized versus ones where the free market reigned and the folks that were protected by a union fared better. And so it looks to me like uh, we're going to go through a period where things like bad air days and excessive heat become part of the further noticed reality for Americans. And so the union movement is the way that we can make sure that capital uh, uh, gives uh, workers and their families the proper respect due. They're not going to do it out of, the, out of the goodness of their heart. They have to be forced to do it because labor is recognized as collective power. Well, why do you think so many people are still resisting the the idea that there's global warming i mean it, the evidence is right there uh and yet uh 
Joe Manchin's going to leave the Democratic Party, for example, over this issue. But there are many people who are still fighting that fight. Uh, do, they, do they not care that uh, they may be destroying the planet for the next generation or the next couple of generations? Well, contemplating the fate of future generations has never been an American strong point. Let's not get carried away. Uh, one of the things that we've uh, this idea of uh, we have this ethos that the founding fathers really uh, uh, had, which was this idea of this infinite natural abundance. And much of uh, the ethos of, of, of the American uh, mindset comes out of this idea that it's infinite. And so uh, the idea of. Well, at the beginning, it felt like it must have felt like it was infinite, but. Right. Surprise, surprise. Right. Um, I do think that one of the things that uh, and and I would recommend the conversation I had with Tim Berger from the Ohio AFL, uh, it looks like they've figured out a way to bridge this gap because, of course, that's a a coal area reliant uh, on steel manufacturing. And they're turning the, the corner by embracing this idea of, of, of clean uh, energy technology. Uh, I mean, it means also, I mean, we can't, there's things that are going on. It means really being engaged locally. We have a fight that, that is getting that attention. The This company, Haltech International, that's part of the decommissioning of Indian Point, wants to dump 1.3 million gallons of wastewater from Indian Point, laced with tritium, hmm. into the Hudson River, the legislature passed a bill uh, to pro- prohibit that, uh, and it's sitting on the governor's desk, and the governor hasn't weighed in. Uh, I mean, these are all these issues are connected, and yet, you know, I haven't seen anything yet in, in, in the New York Times about this. What I did see was a story about people swimming in the Hudson. I, the Hudson, be back. Isn't that wonderful? And then you play a little music by Pete Seeger. Meanwhile, we have this industrial threat that's hanging over us in the form of the wastewater from Indian Point. So there's a lot to do. And uh, that's another reason why this station is more critical than ever, because in this one platform, we address all of these issues. Well, the Times has been cutting back on local reporting on a lot of different levels. They don't even cover the local ball scores anymore. Well, I, I, I saw what they did with the sports desk. I mean, that was kind of a... They've now tried to uh, farm it out to an independent company, the company they own that's non-union. I mean, that said, I'm really glad it exists. And there's a lot of great people there. Marake is a lot of great writing going on. Uh, but I, I would say to you that we can't we can't they need to have a local news ecology. I mean, I was very fortunate. I got to write was the New Jersey section. I date myself. Remember that. The New York Times had had a Sunday New Jersey section. Uh, and so I do think that the the idea of them being dominated by national issues leaves a wide opening. And we try to fill it the best we can. But uh, that's why I'm always so supportive of uh, the News Guild, which is fighting the valiant fight to make sure that the Asbury Park Press, the Bergen Record, and all the papers that Gannett owns in, in New Jersey stay alive. Uh, and that's why, like I say, it all comes back more than ever we have to collectively organize and work together. What about the return of the Village Voice? 
Yeah, well, so far the checks haven't bounced. Uh, it's uh, it's does not. That, do- does that indicate that there is a, still a, an interest in knowing about local matters and local? Uh, matters I would say that covered? there's a yes, there is an interest in a certain kind of uh, holding power accountable. R.C. Baker is a great editor. I enjoy working with him. It's nice to be in contact again with uh, colleagues like Peter Noel and Sarah Ferguson. Uh, I do miss the paper element of it, being on the street, something that you could pick up, the artifact of the newspaper. Uh, but, yes, I'm glad that's back. It's also uh, Work Bites uh, that I'm doing with Steve Wishnia and Joe Maniscalco is now being picked up by uh, David K. Johnson's D.C. reports. So there is there is some positive stuff going on, yeah. Because people are aware of the fact that local reporting has kind of disappeared for a time? Well, I think that that's one of the things that we saw from uh, COVID, right? So Mm -hmm. some of the best reporting that documented what happened in places like the meatpacking plants where uh, Trump used uh, the uh, uh, federal powers to restrict the abilities of local health officials to uh, impose uh, safety standards and to make sure that, um, that, that the workforce was not killing itself. And it was local uh, newspaper folks that and online folks that brought all that to bear. Uh, and so there is more than ever when we have such little of a margin of error when it comes to the environment of the natural world, local reporting is more essential than ever. Meanwhile, we still have your reports for Salon, The Village Voice and other news organizations. How can people check you out? So uh, I'm also uh, write every week, a few times a week for Insider NJ. Max Mazzaro is a great editor. I suggest you check that out. Uh, also, uh, I'm uh, doing stuff for uh, City and State, which is also an essential read to start your day. Uh, and uh, yeah, also the program, we're about to get our second anniversary on Labor Day. What's going on, which is part of a uh, a strip of morning uh, drive time programming. Are you talking uh, about BAI? Yep, yep, 7 a.m. Hmm. every Monday. Frenchie Davis follows me on Tuesday. It's a long uh, Joanna Fernandez later in the week. These are this really worth giving it a listen. Um, I, I think that uh, I do think with the 2024 election coming up, it's, it's just essential that we stabilize WBI's finances and for that matter, the entire Pacifica network. And, of course, as I pointed out earlier, you have a book, Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People, published by Democracy at Work. And I am hoping that BAI uh, continues. There there is talk about all sorts of uh, rather drastic uh, approaches to keep us going. Uh, That's despite the fact that the station has won many awards for its news, arts, and music programs. So um, I, I'm so glad that Bob Henley is one of my colleagues here. And Bob, thank you so much for being on our show. Is there anything you want to add before I go into my outro? No, I just want, I want, to, I th- I want to thank you very much for the, the privilege and honor of free associating with you. I always feel like I've been on the therapist uh, couch, but it doesn't cost me anything. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, because you never know where it's going to go, right? Exactly. And that's part of the fun? Exactly. The charm. Yeah, well, normally you're the one in charge. (laughs) 
I was in great capable hands. Thanks so much, Larry. Talk to you soon. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you'd like to check out more about one-hour interviews, you can access our archive of over 800 shows at WBAI.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere else that podcasts are available. Um, if you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. And Lopate is spelled L-O-P-A-T-E. Right now, I need to ask you to consider stepping up and supporting BAI. Bob and I, and I have been talking about how the station is struggling to stay afloat during these difficult times. And we're asking all of our listeners who haven't taken that step already to make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to keep the unique in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. That's give and then the number 2 WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy, for $10, $15, $20, $25 a month, whatever's comfortable with you. It allows you to plan for us to plan for the future. And um, as a way of saying thank you, we'll send you a WBAI tote bag if you sign up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads or foundation grants, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. If Leonard Lopit at large is part of your daily routine, why not keep it going for someone who's just discovering it? You can do that, as I said earlier, by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org to help support independent radio. And don't forget to make that tax-deductible donation in the name of Leonard Lopez at large. And from all of us at the station, we thank you very much. And I hope you can join us again tomorrow when my guest John Coates will discuss his book, The Problem of Twelve some degree, a topic that relates to things we've been discussing today, the things that I've been discussing with Bob Henley. I hope you'll tune in.